Folks, it's Richard Pullman here, and I've got another guest, and his name is Benoit, and I met him on Discord, as I do, and it's the same thing you know and love. It's it's learning about his games, his interests, how he got into things, uh, what he's hoping to achieve, all that good stuff. Um, I with this episode, the, I think the quality of the sound is good, but. You know, the quality of his mic just doesn't have a lot of richness or tone to it, so it's going to sound very, you know, radio talking through a, you know, a bad speaker sort of sound, and I don't think it's it's painful to listen to or anything like that, but I've been told in the past that people, obviously they want everyone's voice to sound as clear and and full as mine does, but I have a, you know, pretty expensive mic. And I can't ask guests to just buy expensive mics to be on the show. This is about indie indie RPG creators who most of the time weren't expecting to do a podcast until a couple of days before we arrange it. So uh, just please bear with it. And uh, he's a really interesting guy. I I appreciate his coming on and talking with us. And if you have any comments and questions, you can go to... Uh, patreon.com slash Pullman and leave it right on the Patreon there. And I'm uploading everything to anchor.fm. So it's across all these different services, wherever you're listening to it, um, go back to the Patreon. If you want me to notice it, because that's the one spot that I go to, to get feedback and such things. So anyway, with that said, enjoy the episode and yeah, let me know what you think when it's done. And see you around. All right, everyone. Uh, we're back again with another game design episode. I'm here with Benoit, and we we're going to talk about his system, if not systems. Um, he, I met him on Discord and uh, wanted to get to know him. He's got a lot of interesting opinions and is... is you know, giving it his best. So, Benoit, welcome to the podcast, and why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself and the game that you're working on? All right. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Yeah, so I'm Benoit, and uh, I am currently uh, in the process of designing or modifying or uh, working on three different games, uh, Benoit Principle, Gratia and Terror Crisis, as well as a number of smaller projects. But I, uh, I guess I'll go talk more about Benoit Principle today. Otherwise, it's going to take like four hours or something. Uh -huh. We have gone four hours before, but uh, we're not aiming for four hours. Um, the the idea, first of all, I have to say that calling a game Benoit Principle is a pretty bold move, in my opinion. <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, I didn't come up with it, if that's what you're, uh, you know... Uh, oh, where did the name come from, then? I'm I'm curious what the story is. Uh, well, I was in uh, another Discord server. Uh, it was uh, uh, a Discord server all about uh, finding games, finding tabletop games. Uh, and uh, we also did a lot of, uh, you know, there was a channel there where we could discuss about games. 
And uh, one day I wanted to just run a Fallout game, and I tried to find a good Fallout system. Oh, I did find one. That's actually the how Benoit Principle started as a uh, whole thing. I found one. It was like a crowd-funded, or not a crowd-funded, but a crowd-made project. It was called uh, Fallout 3.5 or something like that, Fallout 3.0. It was terrible because it was contradictory in every sense of the word <laughs> because all of the uh, like chapters were made by different people and different groups. Like there was like three different renditions of the item list, for example, with different items, and all of the items were balanced differently. And all of the examples in core rulebook used different like stats from the items than in wow. the inventory. That's pretty bad. Like that. Yeah, I uh, I talked to my friend. Uh, there by the uh, name of Kevin. I've actually credited him on the rule book for the, like, giving me the inspiration for the name. Uh, and he said that, oh, call it something like Benoit Principle. And I was supposed to, like, add the uh, a Benoit Principle somewhere in the game. Like, that was a principle that something works on. And there kind of is is a thing like that. But that name just kind of stuck. And then it's like, well, now the name's stuck and I can't really change it because that's just what it is now. When you say, okay, so that's, I mean, that's fair enough. Do you have, would you, do you consider this to be, do you have a version one already that's like complete and now you're just, you're just adding material and evolving it? Or is it still waiting for the final sort of finished release with, I don't know, do you have artwork and a finished like document, PDF files and everything? Or is it just, a game that people are testing currently. Where do you? Where's the status of the game at right now? Okay, so about two years ago, I did release uh, Benoit Principle version one. It wasn't called Benoit Principle then; it was Fallout Kangs. Uh, <laughs> but uh, as a as a joke, of course. But uh, uh, that was bad. Like it, people liked it. Like uh, we had we had fun playing it, but it. Definitely had certain problems that uh, originated from the contradic contradictory nature of it, and the fact that it used a lot of uh, rules supported from Fallout 2.0, which was also really bad, and which uh, which is why I didn't use it when I wanted to uh, run a game. It was very lethal. Like there was a deathclaw character in the beginning; he they killed everyone, but then through a freak like critical. Multiple critical accidents. They died to, due to a fucking fluke hmm. by a uh, raider. They just instantly killed them. And so like, okay, I guess that's it. <laughs> Make a new character. And it was a very sad situation for everyone. So I was like, okay, I gotta tweak these a little bit. Then that's how it like started. Uh, right now, uh, the most latest version is Benoit Principle Sixth Edition. I can say oh, wow. that this is a very finished product. I've actually seen the 5th edition being shared on a uh, PDF sharing site somewhere. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if anyone was making money off it, but I did copyright strike them. I did hit them with that uh, solid, like, no, you can't share this because I didn't give you a permission to share that. Right. Especially since you're sharing an old version. Is it on sale? Can people get it on DriveThruRPG or something? Uh, and I did try and get it on sale through drive through RPG, but you pretty much have to, uh, like, find me and I'll give you the link. Or if you find one of my players, they can probably give you a link to the, uh, the system. Okay. 
Uh, I'm kind of surprised it's on the sixth version already. That sounds really interesting. Then I'm I'm curious what you would say the sort of major additions are even about. What how it evolved? What what kind of things are you focusing on? Like I, thinking of a Fallout style of game, I can I know there's there's quite a few games that are inspired by Fallout, um, but what what is like version four? What was like a big thing you needed to change? Like obviously you're you're always trying to improve it. What kind of things have you been improving over time? All right. So if I remember correct, uh, version four was slightly experimental. It was either three or four, where I tried to uh, change the uh, how damage the damage is calculated. For example, there was a lot of problems with that initially. It used kind of like a step system originally, where the roll was basically it's uh, oh, you roll a 1d100 against your skill, and the lower you get, the better, and the result is just the uh, like difference between the two numbers, pretty much. Okay. Like, uh, and the higher the uh, resulting number is, I call it aptitude. It wasn't called aptitude before, I think. Uh, the have more damage you would do. So, uh, if you got under 100%, you would do like, uh, like 85% damage or something like that. And if, like, uh, if you got over 100%, for every 15% you went, uh, above the, uh, damage or the, uh, aptitude, uh, you would do like one or two points more damage. So it became a real big hassle to try and calculate, like, like mm. how many, integers of 15 am I over 100 now and uh, <laughs> right, how right. many am I not over 100 with and like yeah, uh, yeah that makes sense so you change that to make it just more streamlined more streamlined and uh, then it became less streamlined and then it became more streamlined again uh, currently how the damage system works is you obviously roll a 1d100 still against the or skill number, and whatever the resulting number is, is the percentage of damage you do. So if your aptitude is like 97, you do 97% damage. And that's as easy as doing, a, if you use a calculator or just roll 20, you just do slash roll like 1d20 and then times 0 0.97. And that's your damage. Hmm. Interesting. Are you banking on people using uh, the online tools and calculators and stuff to be able to, you know, play the game? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. If you're playing this in the more traditional sense, you pretty much do need a calculator. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to calculate oh, wow. damage properly. And that, I mean, that's, I don't think I've ever heard someone say that. Is that like, uh, is that pretty common for the, the community that you were at and sort of the, the fellow designers uh, that you were talking I, to? The only thing I really do is online games. So I've really grown used to the fact that, uh, like, uh, I have all of these online tools that can help, such as Roll20. But I could see in a more traditional sense that, okay, who the hell doesn't have a phone these days? And who the hell doesn't have a calculator these days? Like... I mean, c certainly... Uh, you know, most people have a phone and it has a calculator feature in it, but um, I, I take it then that you're not at all nostalgic about, you know, pen and paper 
um, offline experience, you know, being able to just go to a, a random bench in the park and, you know, play the game or something, <laughs> whatever people do. <laughs> well, uh, I, I guess this is a, like the game is already crunch heavy enough. Like this is not a game that you would be playing in a fucking park bench somewhere like uh, just with no problem. Right, Unless right. you're a real math genius, like <laughs> it, it's not gonna work. What is your uh, what is your take on you know theater of the mind or is it grid based in any way? Uh, how do you how do you feel just about like games that are you know very rules light and and don't use a grid for example and don't have a lot of math and they're trying to streamline it down to make it simpler? It sounds like you have you know fundamentally you want to just put more in and have more systems that you can play around with? Uh, I don't like rules-wide systems. I kind of never had fun with them. It depends on the group I'm with, really. If I'm with a bunch of, like, uh, odd boys and uh, that I don't know anyone in the group, I'm not going to enjoy a rules-wide system. Like, I can only do a rules-wide system with a group of friends that I know really well that, I know won't like abuse the system, hmm. so so to speak, because right. there are no really no rules. It's all a theater of mind. I really like mechanics and crunch more, which is why most of my games are mechanic and crunch heavy, except for maybe Terror Crisis, which is the least crunch heavy. It does have a lot of like uh, things left up to interpretation. But it still does it via numbers. Like, there's always a number associated with uh, with a result. An action is never a, uh, okay, your GM decides what happened. Like, I, I hate that whenever something says a variation of work with your GM to decide what happens. Like, hmm, right. I, I totally understand that part because um, I hate when when the GM just gets to dictate things as well. And it does, I think that's a great point, is that, when a game is rules light, it tends to revolve entirely around personalities at the table and how well people get along and how how willing they are to put up with each other's, you know, exploits or interpretations of a situation instead of having clearly defined uh, systems that handle important things. And for some reason, for some people, obviously... That's not a problem, and so they love rules light because they don't need anything except, you know, they could they could just have no system and they could still role play. I mean, uh, but so the having a a lot of subsystems, on the other hand, makes it harder to learn in the first place. Um, do you have a? I mean, in theory, at least, do you have like? Are you concerned about the? learning curve of your game and sort of starting people off with just a couple of subsystems and then you sort of get introduced to more as your character progresses or how do you manage the learning side of things uh well uh i do know i do know that the game can be a little bit difficult to get into currently the core rulebook itself is 218 pages and then you add all of the uh, subsequent like tables and subsystems I have in play, it's gonna easily blow it up to like three, four hundred pages, and uh, that that is a lot of 
take in, especially if you just go to a new person who's never heard of it. I'm like, okay, we're going to be playing a new game. It's a uh, homebrew. It's 400 pages. Go ahead and get reading. Like, uh, yeah, especially like, if especially if there's things that are counterintuitive that aren't just essentially borrowed from popular RPGs. I don't know how much you try to use uh, systems and mechanics that are already familiar to people. Uh, I know I'm for myself. I don't care about that at all. And I, I gladly put in mechanics that, you know, go against what people assume if they've just played D and D or, you know, something else that's popular. But I also don't have a ton of subsystems. So would you say that you have a lot of original subsystems that sort of, uh, would go against the, grain of what people expect so that you have to actually look up you know all these different things in the in the book if you want to play correctly or is it sort of you get the point if you've just played some of these other systems like warhammer 40k or something else that's a roll a d100 roll under system or something like that well uh the design principle when i was uh what I was bought a youngling two years ago and I started making this system was I would ask a lot of things like, uh, hey, I'm trying to make X, like, what would you recommend I do? And I got a few recommendations. I would thank everyone, like, yeah, yeah, good recommendations. And then I would do the exact opposite of what <laughs> they wanted. And then I would try and <laughs> make it happen through that. Especially if somebody said, Okay, try and do it like, you know, you gave a Warhammer 40k example. I think somebody did, in fact, tell me that you should do it like they do in Warhammer 40k. Sure. So I specifically tried to do the opposite or nothing <laughs> like what they do. So in you're a contrarian is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I'm a contrarian by heart. But sometimes uh, I, I do, when I do hear a good suggestion... Even if it's like copied from somewhere, you know, uh, I, I do go with that. Like, it's not everything has to be like, oh, even, even if it's a, uh, it turns out to be a bad mechanic, I have to keep it simply because it's different from the others. Like, if I do recognize that something is bad, I will try to change it so it's good. But there are definitely are mechanics that, uh, are, are inspired by really nothing except for what I had in mind at that point. And if it is similar to something, the similarity must be, like, subconscious or uh, a total coincidence. Like, okay. I, I don't try to look at other games for inspiration. So is there such a thing as a Benoit principle in, in the game that is sort of easily defined that sort of makes a lot of this stuff click? Or where does that sort of name come from? I would seems to me like you've got some clever thing involved that that justifies the name and would would set up the rest of the system. Uh well I I guess you could say that everything works on the Benoit principle, which is like uh it it has what I tried to make is I tried to make every um like every subsystem I tried to make uh, similar to one another. So they mesh together easily. So if you know one subsystem, you can easily, like, you know, think about how it logically would work on another, and then that helps you. It's not like every subsystem is completely radically different to one another, except, of course, for the two uh, outlying uh, uh, outlying odd boys in the mix, psychics and uh, magics that uh, I've added both of. 
you could say that the Benoit principle is also the root of the psychic system. Uh, the name came about when my friend saw, told me that I should link it to something. So I made it so that uh, in the uh, my version of the Fallout lore, I've just added a small institute that researched psychics. And they they called how the psychics work a, the Benoit principle. Because it was a guy named Benoit who uh, essentially discovered real psychics in, okay. the, uh, in the setting. Sure. That's a cool idea. And the idea of having one principle that, that sort of uh, weaves through all these different subsystems is absolutely something I find useful myself. And, and I've found other people agree with is um, the more you can create intuitive subsystems, the more you can afford to create subsystems because there's essentially a budget of attention that people have and, and the amount of things they can keep in mind at once. And if there's a principle that goes through the entire system, then it, it does speed things up and it lets people remember a lot more. And therefore you can include more things in the system. It's, um, it, what would you say is the Benoit principle? Uh, did I miss it or did you not explain it? Uh, well, uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, but I do have to say not everything in the system is perfect. Like, sometimes making it all, like, similar and uniform simply doesn't work. There are a few, um, like, I, I should say, black sheep in there. They're, the weapon customization system is tied into the armor customization, the, uh, like, chemistry system of the game the herbalism system of the game, it's all similar, but it also feels kind of janky at this point. I think I more or less perfected it for Gratia, and later when I work more on Benoit Principle, possibly for the 7th edition, I am going to take something I learned from Gratia, and I'm going to insert it into Benoit Principle and make it better. I want to make every single subsystem that I have in play as good as I possibly can, as you know, like uniform as I possibly can, but at this point, some of them are a bit wonky, but they but they still work. I gotta say, I just get jealous hearing about somebody having six editions. <laughs> as somebody who's never released my first edition because I keep changing it and I don't feel comfortable calling it the first edition, uh, I feel like I should have just put out my first version, you know, two years ago when I thought I had it, and then I second guessed it and it. I put it back into into going back to square one almost or something, and I I could have just been you know working on different editions this whole time, and instead I've just been delaying having any edition at all. <laughs> but uh, so you know, I have to say, I think also this was a discussion just the other day on the Discord that the uh, idea of crunch versus being wonky versus being clunky. There's these different terms people use. Of course, none of them are even remotely scientific or, you know, they're just buzzwords, really, that we, we sort of get what we mean. But, you know, the I was trying to argue the other day that being clunky can actually be sort of a good thing in a system um, if by what what I meant by that is that like if there's a part of the system that forces you to slow down and do all of the steps correctly in order to get a result that you can't sort of estimate it you can't fudge it you can't skip a step 
I think there's a part of us that, that as role players that likes to do that. Um, even if in general, people like to have a, a sort of smooth ride and just sort of stay in character and focus on the situation that their character is in. Do you, what do you think about that idea that there's, there's a certain appeal to just like actually doing some math right now, or I think that's one of the reasons why something like a traditional initiative system has this weird lasting appeal, even though everyone knows it's stupid. The idea that everyone has to suddenly, okay, stop. This guy said roll initiative. Now everyone has to roll a dice and we have to add our modifiers and blah, blah, blah. It's like it becomes a part of the ritual of playing. And I think there's a reason why it doesn't go away, even though logically it should. Uh, I guess I, I can sort of see where you're coming from with that. Like, uh, it does sort of feel like that. Initially, when you talked about clunky, I did start to think about the, uh, customization systems I have in play, and none of them can really be done instantaneously. Like, even mm -hmm. in the game, your, your character is supposed to take a few hours. In fact, they have to take a few hours in game to complete said action. So it's not like, uh, well, if you can time skip, it does happen instantly. But if another player wants to do something in the meantime, uh, like in the, uh, okay, your character is like building an armor for four hours. Like right. now you, your character has four hours. What do you do? So it, kind of gives them the opportunity to, like, review their work, kind of, before they, like, roll for the result of the action or something like that. But mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the initiative, like, uh, yeah, I can I can totally see where you're coming from. And it kind of does feel similar in my system, although you don't roll for initiative in that. The initiative is a static number. It is merely called sequence or combat sequence. And it kind of does feel like that when we get into combat, like, I just ask, like, okay, what is everyone's sequence? So I can add them to the list or something like that. Right. And then everyone kind of has to, like, either remember it or they just look at their character sheet and go, like, oh, my sequence is this. And then they can extrapolate from, like, the turn order, like, oh, this enemy has a high sequence, therefore they must have high perception and high agility and stuff like that. So, so the sequence is derived from other stats? And it just, yes. and, and theoretically, if you, I don't know how much, we haven't even gotten into the, what your character's sort of, uh, you know, stats or, or how they're constructed or how you customize them or how they progress. But, you know, presumably they have, you could do things that would enhance your base principles to get your sequence number higher or lower, whichever one is better. <laughs> Uh, base principles. I, uh, I love, love that, uh, love that phrase. Uh, yeah, you definitely can. Uh, combat sequence, for example, is derived from mostly your perception and then apart from your agility. So the, uh, if you have a character with high perception and high agility, you are likely going first in combat. Like, uh, it used to be completely derived from agility before. But then I decided to change it and then, like, front load some of the importance towards perception. Because I noticed that everyone, including a lot of, like, gun-based characters, would just fucking tank perception. 
because they felt like that it was a dubstep. Like, hmm. agility and intelligence are, in a Fallout game, the two most important attributes you can have, pretty much the special attributes. So I want to, like, uh, change up the formula a little bit and be like, okay, perception is actually important. Like, you can't just dump it like charisma. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about what, how you create your character. Uh, you know, do you start off with sort of nothing and then the whole idea is that you have to sort of scrounge and scavenge uh, different stuff? Do you try to play up the idea of classes that are cool right off the off the start or is it sort of point-based system like Fallout? Uh, I assume that it is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you just because followed has you know a lot of customization and it's it's point by that doesn't mean that you do what is the idea of the sort of the evolution of a character right from the start from creating it oh let's see well uh i have a uh immediately like in the uh rule book there is the character creation outline so there is um like, you could say that there's ten steps into creating a character, which is far less if you're making a character who's level one. You don't have to worry about leveling up or skills or anything like that. But I guess everyone starts with a concept. What do they want to do, first of all? Like, uh, where do they draw inspiration from? There are a lot of... Um, the first choice you do is race, of course. There are a lot of races you can pick in uh, in a in Fallout in general, and in my game, I've tried to add as many as possible, and I've also made it so you can um, you can add even more if I have the idea, or if somebody else, someone else has the idea, they can add more into that. Uh, I'm not thinking of, maybe I'm, it's been a long time since I've played a Fallout game, but I'm not thinking of a lot of races, aside from human and sort of mutant and... And like zombie, zombified people. What are the races in in Fallout or your game? Okay, so uh, all of the races in my game are, of course, derived from Fallout. You can play as a human, a ghoul, a super mutant, a deathclaw, a robot, a dog, an abomination, a brahmin, an alien, or a synth. <laughs> oh, you're going all out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Um. Interesting. Why why are people playing as as Brahmin? Uh because I uh I saw at uh in Fallout Tactics you can actually make Brahmin characters in uh in uh, in the multiplayer and I'm pretty sure you can also recruit a Brahmin character to your party in the base game. How I, for example, like to use Brahmins when I was playing a multiplayer game is I would uh, just create timed explosives and I would give them to the Brahmin and then I would just walk the Brahmin to my enemy. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's awesome. That's what you should be able to do in Fallout. But at, at the same time, I'm not seeing it as a protagonist in a in an adventuring party. <laughs> Uh, oh, like the, no, that there's the uh, there's the interesting part. Like you can make it a protagonist. It's very difficult to play Brahmin. I've also expressed this in the rule book that Brahmin make terrible characters. Oh, okay. Um, there there are two. You can play a two headed Brahmin or a uh, one headed Brahmin. The one headed Brahmin has an astounding intellect or intelligence maximum of three. So uh, and the two headed has an astounding intellect max of two. 
So, <laughs> like, uh, they're very stupid, and they're also, like, they can't talk. Mm-hmm. They just have to move all, all of the time, and uh, they can they can only act as smart as a uh, like a player character Brahmin could, pretty much. Now, no offense, but this is very quickly sounding like a meme game instead of a very crunch heavy thought through system that uh, yeah, deserves that's six only editions. Because you, you have the option of playing a Brahmin, like I, I've added that in there as like uh, if you really want to, you can try sure, it okay. and see how it feels like. And uh, most often, or not, I also ban the option of ever playing a Brahmin. Unless the characters decide to pick up this nice little trait called uh, Wild Wasteland. Uh, then they can, like, reasonably say, like, oh, my character has Wild Wasteland. And, okay, so I guess you can play a Brahmin then, because that's very Wild Wasteland. I see. And uh, same, I mean, roughly the same thing would apply to playing as a dog. Is there any other races that, that you sort of put aside as being only for crazy people or sort of uh, amusement? Uh, I guess you could say most of the abomination ones are as well. Uh, you could think the abomination is like the more normal mutant variety rather than the uh, like FED-induced uh, mutation of being a super mutant or uh, being a death call. Uh, for example, the human abomination is like... Oh, kind of seems like a human, like they used to be a human, but due to excessive mutation, they just became like this grotesque-looking thing rather than a human. But they're not really a super mutant either. They're just an abomination. Mm -hmm. So you can also have ghoul abominations. It's the same thing as, you know, uh, as the human. You were a ghoul, and you became like an abomination, or you kind of failed the transformation into a ghoul, and you're just kind of this, like, weird-ass monster. Yikes, yeah. Uh, yeah. E- every race that can possibly be an abomination has the sub, uh, uh, sub-race on the abomination. You can be a human, ghoul, super mutant death god, dog, brahmin, or even zethan abomination. Zethan abomination probably being one of those weird hybrids that you, uh, you saw in, uh, if you played Mothers of Zeta, the Fallout 3 DLC. I never did. I, I'm obviously not as, as familiar with uh, this series as you. I don't even know if I know offhand what a Zeta is. Zetan. Uh, those are the gray aliens that uh, you had in uh, Fallout. Like, uh, Fallout, of course, has a lot of crashed aliens ships and uh, a lot of alien things in it, like... Uh, you, sometimes you have, like, a, you know, in Fallout 4, you can find a crashed alien ship as a random event, and mm, you can go and kill right. the alien, get their, like, alien blaster. Like, uh, I just gave, straight up gave the option of playing an alien if the uh, situation ever arises. And because the uh, character sheet uh, that I've made for this game, and the game itself uses a race plus sub-race system, I also have room for other alien sub-races, so this game can be used for other things than Fallout. If you have, like, a game that features a lot of different aliens, you can just have a, like, a Zetan alien, you can have a Rombargulon alien, you can have a, like, uh, what others are there that just come to my mind? An Eldar alien, if you really want to run 40k with the system. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I can see that. And I guess you're just not concerned about the idea of, you know, intellectual property, you know, calling these things by their actual names from the Fallout oh, yeah, series. Yeah, of course, because I'm, I'm not making money out of this, so I'm well, not expecting Bethesda to come knocking on my door to give them royalties, that I can just laugh at their face, that, like, this is just a fan project, like, I'm yeah. not making money out of this, I don't have to pay you shit, and I don't have to shut this down either. <laughs> well, right, that's that's great, it's just that I, I'm surprised you don't want to make money off of it if you've put so much effort into it, and, you know, you've gotten to the sixth edition, and you're still passionate about it and you still want to keep working on it that's not the, uh, that's not what i usually hear uh, from people who put so much you know time and effort into something like that uh oh it's kind of like i know i knew from the very start that i can't make money out of this because any substantial amount of money i make uh ev like uh, either everything or most of that would have to go to bethesda because uh well, you know, I mean, they they own the rights to fallout so yeah but there's always the you know the the sort of knockoff version that you can always do for for free I and mean, you just change all the names and they don't own the idea of a wasteland i mean <laughs> yeah aliens. they don't and then then i could definitely change like the ghouls into like uh, like zomborgs or something and just be like oh no they're they're not ghouls they're zomborgs so like oh no no man there's so many people who do that in in indie rpg design it's definitely on the table as an option that's all i'm saying yeah no definitely i could at some point go ahead and change all of the uh fallout related things into non-fallout related things and just be like okay now this is my own creation like uh, maybe inspired by fallout but uh mm -hmm. it's completely different but it also has so so much Fallout stuff crammed in there. It would be a pain in the ass to go and <laughs> go and change it to uh, be not Fallout. Okay, I know? see. Yeah, there there does hit a certain point where it's not worth it. Mm. Um, is Gratia a completely original setting? And uh, yeah, Gratia is completely original. Uh, some things are, of course, inspired by other mediums that I found interesting. At the time I was creating it, I well, still yeah. do find it interesting. Uh, I try and avoid the uh, mentality of, like, uh, the, uh, you know, the thing of the week that uh, I've seen happen where it's like, oh, I really want to run a mecha game because I just watched Gurren Logan for the first time. And then a month later, they're like, okay, I'm over mechas now. Now I want to run, like, a fucking JoJo's game because I watched JoJo's just now. Yay! Like... <laughs> I my inspirations tend to be a little bit more rigid, and so I try and uh, try and make something for something that I know will last and my interest will last. So it's not it it won't be dead in uh, in dead in the water after a month. What's the general genre of Gratia? Uh, you could say that it's more of a fantasy game, but then if you read into it. It also has a uh, system for creating mechas. It has a system for creating, uh, like, you know, androids and cyborgs, if you w so wish. Uh, I could also... Oh, it also has pretty much... You can. I could easily, in the future, make mechanics for space travel for that game. So it's this weird amalgamation of uh, of weird things. I really went all out in the weird lore and the weird mechanics in in Gratia. Uh, nothing feels like it makes sense, but if you read the lore <laughs> that's in the book, it kind of does make sense. Well, that's that's a hell of a pitch. <laughs> yeah, 
I, oh. I, I took inspiration from Morrowind, so you know it's very fucking weird when you take ins- Morrowind as your main inspiration. Yeah, no kidding. Man, that takes me back. Um, so, how old are you? As a, you know, and and what where where did you get into role playing in the first place? Uh, did you start by playing online RPGs? Did you have a history from you know sort of before the internet revolution? Uh, so I was born in 1995, so I'm 24 now, and I did not get into this hobby, like, seriously until, like, three or two and a half years ago. It may sound, like, really weird that, uh, in, in two or three years I've already gone so, so deep in there, but I did in fact start with, uh, freeform, uh, roleplay, uh, through Skype. I had a group that I uh that we role played with. There was uh a guy called Seto Kaiba. Uh he wasn't actually called Seto Kaiba. I just called him Seto Kaiba because he was a dragon fetishist. <laughs> and uh we just uh, kind of had a like freeform RP that we did every now and then with like weird characters that were obviously inspired by animus and stuff like that. And uh it uh, kind of started from there and then I had a huge break where I just kind of uh, grew up from that uh edgy phase phase and then I uh and more then more as an adult I rediscovered my interest for these and I was like, Yeah, I really wanted to always play D and D but I never got into it. Mm-hmm. So I eventually never played D and D and I uh, just uh, started running my own games after participating in one or two different ones. Well, I don't think you're any worse for it. That's it's not like people have to play D and D. That's for sure. Um, mm. I also didn't get into role playing tabletop in, until recent years, and uh, you know I'm in my 30s, and I I never even wanted to play tabletop games until um, I sort of became weary of different stuff in video games and. Uh, I wanted to design, I think, you know, I wanted to design a video game in theory, although obviously I wasn't going to delude myself into thinking I actually could. And and tabletop games sort of became, I became interested in tabletop games because I wanted to design games, not because I'd played a bunch of role-playing games and then decided I could do it myself. So I'm coming at it from an even more backwards angle than you are, and... uh really enjoying it i enjoy talking to people about the you know the the way they get into it and younger people especially it's really interesting to me the way that something is old and you know what used to be very um hard to get into like tabletop rpgs because if it was considered such a nerdy thing and it was considered uncool is just a completely different culture by now and and people can just come in, start doing it by playing online with even complete strangers who they don't even know each other's real names, and and you know then go on to learn a bunch of systems because all you need are these PDF files, and it just becomes so easy to try a lot of things and to play, and yeah, it's that's one of the reasons why I love to talk to people who are old and experienced, played for ages, and their kids in the in the 90s or 80s and other people who just came into it in recent years and now are still just as interested in creating their own games. Um, with with that said, do you have... So it sounds like you have playtesters, you're running it yourself. 
um, do you want to have like, sort of how do you get players? How do you get more sort of uh, testing? Do you just sort of have your core group that you work with, or are you trying to use the discords to get more people into it? Where is it at in terms of play testing and you know getting feedback and all that kind of stuff? Uh, well, uh, I do have a core group of friends I play with. I don't really call them uh, playtesters in the official sense. I, I just run these as if they were, uh, like, real games. Sure. And uh, I, I, I don't go into it like, okay, this is a beta test. I just run a campaign from start to finish using the system, if I can. If uh, interest doesn't waver or players don't go somewhere and it's like, okay, now I have no one to run with anymore because schedule change or something. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I just go into it and then I listen to feedback. I try and ask questions during and after the game, like, uh, well, how did you like whatever and whatever? And, uh, you know, that's where also the uh, we talked a little bit about the uh, learning curve of the game. If I do get new players, and I occasionally do get new players whenever I run a new campaign, uh, I, they do kind of ease into the system where they start out with something simple. And then they uh, I, I try and throw a, a certain type of challenge to them. I try and encourage them to use the different skills in the system. Benoit Principle has 42 skills at the moment. Gratia has 120, and Terror Crisis has somewhere around, like, 20 skills. Uh, so, like, uh, I, I try and encourage them to use different skills and different strategies, and they, from that they kind of get, garner interest. And if their current character dies, they can then do another one, and then they can, like, try out something new with that. I recently had a player who... Uh, like had never played Benoit Principle before. He probably had heard of it at heard of it at some point. And they just made a very simple character in the beginning and they were just like, I don't I'm not expecting this character to last whatsoever. I just made something that fit the theme. Turns out their character lasted a very long time. Uh just because of like they were a decent character. And uh then one day, unfortunately, they had a freak radiation accident and they died. Hmm. <laughs> so they made a new one and they explored some of the new mechanics. They really got into the weapon creation system, for example. He uh, he used it to create what he called the Mensa God to uh, one of the other player characters, which was uh, just like this huge fucking like double-barreled flintlock pistol. Mm -hmm. uh, the only problem with it was that it increased your critical failure chance by 25% when you uh, wielded <laughs> it and tried to shoot it. So uh, it was a very dangerous gun in that uh, respect. But uh, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, getting, getting direct feedback from playing with your own friends and not thinking of them as playtesters is totally, totally fair. And... Uh, when you're talking about the learning curve, though, I wonder, um, are you always teaching people and coaching them through the system, or have you tried to have the experience of giving it to a complete stranger and then just sort of seeing the feedback without you being involved so that, you know, somebody else can tell you what it feels like to run the game and learn it all from scratch? Mm, well, it doesn't really have a, like, GM's helper handbook uh, on it. So uh, it, it feels very, uh, it, 
feels very difficult to try and run it as a uh, GM because you're literally given no instructions on how to run the game. Right. So it's really only for experienced GMs only. I did at one point have the idea or an inclination to write like a GM helper's handbook for uh, the uh, for the system, but I but I never did. So I haven't had that experience. But considering the fact that uh, it was available online, and right after I dropped that copyright strike, I did started receiving emails to uh, like, "Hey, can I have Benoit Principle Fifth Edition?" Sure, yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. So uh, either it was some other dude, uh, either it was the same dude trying to upload it somewhere else, or it was uh, actual legitimately interested players who were using that place to get the rulebook from and then they were just like oh i can't have it anymore like you know uh can i have this new one so there must be one or two groups somewhere out there who are who were at some point using this system that's but a great I, point. I have never heard from them hmm interesting yeah uh man i i it really is interesting how how much things have changed in terms of role-playing design and getting like the idea that they would play it and not even give you feedback is very strange to me. Uh, if I knew that the creator was available online and I was playing something and I had any sort of opinion on it at all, I think I would, I would want to let them know that I liked it or something. Cause it's not like you're selling it. So you're not being greedy. Um, yeah. But, uh, the, the thing here also is that if I find a, uh, I, if I find a homebrew RPG system, uh, on the, uh, online and I run it, I wouldn't go through the trouble of finding out who the crea creator was and sending them an email about like, hey, uh, like, uh, I really liked your system. Here's what I didn't like. Here's what I liked. Um, I, I personally wouldn't go through the trouble of, uh, sending an email to someone to hmm. tell them how I liked your system. So I don't expect anyone to do it for me. Sure. Yeah. I guess, I guess there's just sort of a, I don't know. I, I, I'm clearly out of touch with the role playing scene online, but the idea of having just sort of all of these games available and then just people are just downloading, probably have like, you know, 50 of them on their computer and they just decide in their group, which one they want to play and just sort of run with it. And it's all, it's all loose and you're not having the sort of experience of ordering it and, you know, having this respect for the creator and then what they're trying to go for. And then you, you want to give them feedback because you want to be involved with it and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's very interesting to see I know it's a homebrew, so that changes things a little bit. It makes it more sort of of a loose feeling to begin with because it's not like it has this original setting people are getting invested in. I've noticed that with people who make like a Pokemon RPG or something else. It's like you just sort of throw it out there, and the, and the community that already exists for that will just consume it and and run with it themselves in a lot of cases. Do you get tempted to turn... You know, uh, well, I guess that's what Gradia is, is, is your, your original setting and everything that you have there. So are you planning on selling that and getting, you know, promoting it and making a GM guide for that? And, and uh, you said that was more experimental, at, right? Yeah, probably at some point, but Gratia is so experimental to the point where I would find it difficult to believe that 
a person or a group of people would be interested in that. <laughs> but, uh, like, I'd, I'd really have to, like, make a real big, like, uh, GM helper's book on all of the mechanics of the game to uh, have people even understand it. You know, it's it's alien to the point where it's like very difficult to even even get into. Like, that's, uh, that's very interesting to me. Just the idea of of even thinking of RPG design that way. I'm, I don't want to like harp on it too much, but I've talked to quite a few people, and the idea of designing a game that only you are going to run. I mean, I guess there's I mean Thade and Molly that we know from the the Discord. They they are not particularly concerned with anyone else running their system. Uh, but I think even they eventually want to change it into a, a documented system that you could give, you know, some anybody and they would be able to run it. And that's just such a foreign concept to me from where I come from, where I'm hyper-focused and almost obsessed with trying to get a, a new GM who's never GM'd in their life to be able to even understand it uh, and... The ability, like putting together a, a document that works for experienced people and, and newcomers and everybody, and to me, that's such a big part of designing the RPG itself. Um, is is trying to figure out how I would communicate my ideas to other people, but I guess it can just be completely the opposite, and just and it's something so experimental that you're just only going to run it yourself, and that's good enough. Sometimes it feels like that, that I'm, uh, I'm just doing it for myself, for my own enjoyment, but maybe at some point, like, you know, it took me two years really to get Benoit Principle to the point where it is now, where I feel like very comfortable about it. Like, I could say that even the fifth edition was, of the game was also, like, I, I really enjoyed the, uh, product that I made there. Uh, sixth edition was just kind of, uh, polishing most of the stuff, like, as the editions grew, like, the content I added also grew, but it also became more polished. So maybe Gratia will get into a point where it will also, like, I have all of the experimental mechanics settled down, like, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, this is what I'll keep, and then I'll try and make it understandable to people, rather than just a hodgepodge that uh, only I can really understand and run. To a, uh, to a good degree. Yeah, I mean, you have, uh, you said you wanted to be able to, like, really push the limits of character creation and everything in Gratia. Um, uh, do you want to talk at all about what sort of the, like, you said it was weird, but how different is it from Benoit Principle in how it sort of plays? Uh, if you had something like an example of, let's say, you know, because ultimately it all comes down to a situation and how characters can handle themselves in a situation. So if you had the same situation in, in the two different games, would it feel very different resolving those situations, dealing with challenges in them? Or is it essentially the same core, but just the character creation and setting and everything makes it feel weird? I, uh, I suppose the uh, situation would be handled differently based on uh, the character of the system you're playing with. Um, because Gratia has a lot more like utility and a lot more mechanics to consider and a lot more skills to consider. So you might have a completely different approach 
as to a uh, as to a Fallout character, and that's also the um, feel that I try to embody for the system. When I make Benoit Principle, I try and make it feel like a Fallout game sure. in, a, in a certain respect. Uh, a lot of that is also uh, has to be offloaded to the game master of the game. They have to make the world that the uh, players are playing in feel like a Fallout world. But when you're doing a very basic character, a very Fallout character, you're making a human, you're making a super mutant, you can really make that character feel like a, like a wasteland. You can make, really make the character feel like a uh, super mutant. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can embody that feeling and I can embody that, like, sense that you get, like, hey, I'm playing a Fallout game, like, that's good. And, uh, in the, in, then in Gratia, it's, of course, the, hey, I'm playing in an alien weird setting, like, then that's mission accomplished, I guess. So, one of the ways I was thinking about this is, you know, how much, uh, if you had a Venn diagram with overlap in terms of just playing the mechanics, not even, not even the setting, uh, is it mechanically overlapping a lot? Is it, are, are there suddenly like, let's say I've played Benoit Principle for, you know, three or four months. I'm comfortable yeah. with it. I start playing Grady. Is it, is it jarring and do I have to suddenly relearn the basics or, is it feel like oh this is made by the same guy? It's still a D one hundred roll under thing. There's still sequences for how you handle combat turn order and all that kind of stuff. Because when I hear experimental, I mean I think like there's some really crazy experimental ways to handle. You know, like I one of the first people I maybe I think it was the first principal person I ever did one of these podcasts with was like. My game's not about playing as a character as, as much as it is like making a you know you're playing as the character's like plot in a in an anime story and you have to like oh, decide what your okay. decide what your like plot twist is in this scene and like you're like you're barely even playing as a character anymore and you can't die because you know your character is always able to push their luck and it's just like it's it, that's what i think of when i think of experimental but oh okay so that that's a different sense of the word and i guess you could uh re- you, you you could get into gratia easier as you go into if you came from benoit principle but um well let's see here you you would have to kind of re- relearn how the attributes work and relearn how the skill points work you'd have to relearn how the uh skill points are allocated um like, uh, you'd have to relearn, like, there's the addition of lore skills, so you have to understand what those lore skills mean. There's, um, uh, there's techniques, there's spells, there's psychic powers, uh, in Gratia, and, uh, those are, again, similar to what you have in Benoit Principle, but the uh, mechanics and the system on how it works is only, like, inspired, but it works on a completely different manner again, so you have to relearn that. Uh, in a in a respect, the character creation is completely different. Um, the you don't have a race and sub race like you have in Benoit Principle. You just have a race. The only one that actually has a sub race is uh, in Gratia is a race called Chimera. Uh, Chimeras are basically um, humans combined with a monster or an animal. 
So uh, there are 20 different sub-races for the Chimera, for example, uh, if I'm not too mistaken. Uh, and one Wait, of them is the X-Factor. You decide yourself. There's the Wolfman, there's the Plant Man, there's the Squid Man, there's the Slime Man, you know. Are those all man, different Chimeras? Yeah, those are all different Chimera sub-races. Right, so, okay. So if you everyone is a chimera, but they are a different type of chimera. Right, right, right. And then so within the plant type, there'd be different plants, right? And no, it's just one. Uh, it's the uh, like uh, it's the one plant chimera, like the plant oh, okay. chimera. Like if if two characters are a plant chimera, they would uh, feel similar, but there's so much randomness in the character. Uh, creation process, and you can choose your edges, you can choose your what uh, focus you have and what skills, what specializations and interests you have, and even what job class you have, so no two characters will ever be similar, even though they have the same race. Hmm. It, it's, it's occurring to me that one of the things that stands out about the way you're doing this, and I'm not I'm not making a judgment on it either way. It's just interesting to me is that because you didn't play Dungeons and Dragons and you didn't sort of go through this traditional route of approaching it, um, you're not you're not sort of rebelling against the things that um, people tend to get hung up on and want to fix. Uh, and especially if you sort of just created your own and you've been happily running it with your own friends. Um, and if you're basing it on something as popular and, and fun as followed and you managed to do that, it's just interesting to me that it doesn't seem to me like you have a lot of baggage from bad experiences in crappy games that <laughs> you're, you're, you're bringing into all of this. And that's cool that I, I totally I don't have it either in terms of I didn't play a lot of tabletop games uh, as well. But um, do you feel like playing, if you were to play a bunch of other games, you'd get sort of this other perspective that you'd suddenly want to, you know, not necessarily just take mechanics from, but like... I know from me talking with all the different people on this podcast, I get a sense of just how incredibly different RPGs can be from each other and the priorities that one designer has versus another, the thing that they're trying to fix. You know, everyone has something they want to fix from a different system that they've played, it seems like. And if you if you don't have those negative experiences, <laughs> um, what is your sort of like driving goal with something like Gradio or something that's experimental. Normally I think of people experimenting for the sake of trying to fix a certain problem that they've noticed in a different system. Um, but what is sort of the, the motivation for you to experiment more? Uh, let's see. Uh, I am not certainly limited to my own games. I have been 
uh, a part of, still am a part of uh, other games people run. Okay. And I've also run uh, games other than my own before, so I do have experience from others. Okay. I just kind of... I just kind of have this, like, I can switch myself from one mode to another, so I don't have to, like, compare two systems together too much. Of course I still do it if I see a mechanic. I'm like, oh, neat, I did this differently in mine, and then I just move on. And when I go to make something in Gratia, I'm just like, I want to make something interesting, I want to, like, try out something new, I want to try out something original... I don't have to necessarily fix a, a like a bad system that somebody else has. I'll just try and make something of it and uh, see what see what happens. So you're just in- inherently sort of interested in in game design and in the experiences you can create from you know with your own creativity and stuff like that. It, it's that sounds somewhat similar to how I approach it. Where um, I mean, I did play fifth edition and i hated it so much that i was definitely reinforced in what i wanted to fix and what i wanted to try to achieve in my own game but it's not like people who come in especially one of the interesting things that the differences that i've noticed is between people who come into game design from a player's perspective versus running games for a long time and then wanting to make their own system as a very experienced GM, and yeah, okay. So if you're playing, if you're playing a bunch of different games, then and you've run different games, then uh, then that is all the experience you would need, obviously, and you'd have a lot of perspective. Um, how much do you? This is just sort of a random thing. I'd like to I'd like to ask anyway. Um, how much do you have an overlap in your mind between video games? and RPGs because traditionally those are thought to be very different and I feel like there's especially younger people there's a whole generation that doesn't really see them as being you know that different in terms of you're essentially trying to recreate a feeling right you're trying to create like you did with Fallout you're trying to create the feeling that you're playing Fallout without a computer without or I guess with a computer you're playing <laughs> through the internet, but you're not, you know, playing a multiplayer game together like Fallout 76. You're just playing tabletop and you can role play it yourself. Do you get inspired by video games for stuff like Gradia and, and the video game world? Or is it a lot of inspiration from other games and just the logic of role playing itself? Uh, I guess I'm more inspired by video games uh, than uh, anything else. Like, I talked about job classes in uh, Gratia. The first time I pitched it to my group of friends and we started running it, one of them was like, I thought that this was a Final Fantasy game. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, like, Gratia, for example, ha- I've, uh, I've divided combat into two different types. There's the quick combat and the tactical combat in uh, Gratia. Tactical combat is the more, uh, like, traditional, like, uh, you have the hex-based grid where you have, you're like, oh, you can only move a certain amount and, like, you can attack a certain range and blah, blah, blah. But quick combat is, I, it's kind of like you're just in a JRPG, a turn-based role-playing game, because it 
that's kind of what even a tactical combat is. You just simplify the movement, and you just simplify the range, and then that's pretty much it. Mm. You want to elaborate on that? Because I'm always interested in that kind of stuff. Like, So when you when you say it's like a turn-based RPG, you mean you know everybody picks their move, and then based on their sequence, they, they play them out, or... Because even within the turn-based video game realm, there's a lot of a lot of variation. Um, do you have like the ability for counterattacks and interrupts and and all of this kind of stuff, or is it truly turn-based? I hit you, you can hit me when it's your turn, that kind of thing. Uh, well, it uh, like the quick combat does share all of the mechanics that are present in the normal combat. As uh, as Except for maybe one or two. Range is the most important one that's, like, you know, muddled a little bit. Even if you have only a range of two hexes on your uh, on your range stack, that means you can hit anyone in the uh, in, in quick combat because it does technically have range uh, or something like that. You can still do interruptions. You can still do uh, counterattacks. You can still do reactions to certain attacks, you can still muddle the turn order if you have uh, abilities that can do that, if you have techniques or spells or psychic powers that can do that. Like, it still does feel like you have a lot of agency and you have a lot of tactical decisions you can make, despite it looking like it's just a simple, like, turn-based combat. So if nobody cares about the more of the more technical side of how things work, it can easily muddle down to, I use all of my actions to attack the enemy twice. But uh, then if I notice that players are doing that a lot, sometimes they might uh, be thrown again. I don't deliberately throw a very tricky enemy against them that works against the playstyle, it just happens so it just so happens that I've designed a couple of enemies and some of them do work tricky where they have a lot of like, oh you can't really hit them with normal attacks because they're very small and they very like they have very high evasion or they have like the auto dodge uh ability so they can uh, automatically roll evasion against all attacks as many times as in the turn as they want mm. uh despite what the normal what you can normally do and stuff like that like uh that's interesting. You know? oh, go ahead. Oh, no, that was pretty much what I was about to say anyways. Like, uh, uh, I was already done. Like, you do have a lot of tactical decision-making you can do, but you can also boil it down to just I attack, and I pass her, and I attack, I pass her. But yeah. that's what, you know, some you're, tactical combat even. In a way, you're kind of just removing, or you're you're working with a lot of assumptions that are normal, uh like where you'd be standing, you'd be standing within attack range, you know, and so you just eliminate a lot of discussion of what happens by just making, and that's that's probably a smart way of doing it. I I personally feel like I'm probably doing something like your quick style with my normal combat style, um, where I don't think of it as being turn-based like an like a video game but it is definitely trying to avoid the confusion and um slowness of having a proper grid and working out the ranges of everything and people counting spaces to try to make sure that they're 
maximizing their their range because I find that for myself, I haven't been in you know any brawls where there's a bunch of chaotic fighting or whatever, but even the little bit I have fought is like you're not thinking about you know there's no point at which you can safely hit somebody at this distance and then just like run away and then you they have to wait three turns and get attacked three more times before they can react to what you just did and it's like if you're within reach they're probably within reach and things are I, I get annoyed by the traditional you know lining up people in a row and then having a a bolt of lightning hit all of them and then your next guy comes in and backstabs somebody and then one of them gets to go and hit one of your guys. And if you just play it out in real time, if you were to, like, record it and just play it back, it's like this stupidest fight ever. Um, <laughs> no one would ever fight like that. But so the, the idea but... of quick reactions and forcing people to sort of cluster together and sort of naturally gravitate into each other is more realistic in my mind, unless they are literally sitting back and sniping or something. But... Um, how concerned are you about stuff like realism and and pacing and all that stuff? Or is it just, this is video game logic, this is game logic. It works the way it works because that's what makes it so that players can make interesting choices and have the most fun in sort of a planning stage. What, what's your priority when it comes to stuff like that? Well, uh, I, I do try to amount a, a amount of sprinkle of realism every now and then. But I do also, like, I, I know where the limitations are. Like, if you make a realistic simulator, the game is boring. Because all it is is number crunching to try and make out a situation as much as possible. If you make a game that is as realistic as possible, it becomes an impossible impossible number crunch. Like, you, you get fatal at that point. And it's, hmm. it's not good at all. It's not good at all at that point. Everyone knows how bad fatal is. Um... Like, uh, I know where the limitations are in that respect. So I do try and make some situations feel like, okay, you do have limitations there because you'd have limitations in real life over what you can do. But, uh, Fallout, for example, is such, such a crazy world that, uh, anything could happen in that. And like, radiation doesn't work at all. Like, real life radiation works. So that realism is thrown out the window. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, a lot of the combat in any any game is uh, a lot of abstractions, anyways. So even the tactical combat that we just spoke of, like the uh, like the D and D style uh, style battle where somebody just goes and backstabs someone, like it, it doesn't. It feels like a stupid stupid situation. So like you just have to like, okay, this is the mechanics we play with. Like they may or may not be close to what it really would happen, but you know that that's just how things go. That's very interesting that you, that when you think of realism, that you think of something like fatal and that striving for realism would result in something like that because I don't, I, I feel like it's, it's so the opposite that that's so unrealistic because it's so overcomplicated and that there's got, there's, that's sort of a, a timeless discussion on role playing design and abstraction itself is, is is being realistic adding more and more factors and simulating more and more small details or is being realistic weeding out all the noise that isn't important 
and focusing only on what actually matters. And if you were to talk to somebody who, for example, is a MMA fighter or, you know, I'm not going to say that HEMA, you know, armor and real swords and stuff simulation is, is real combat, but they are trying to get close to simulating that, you know, you get stories from people with experience that actually this, this, and this doesn't matter, even though, you know, on paper you think you want to simulate those things and really put them into the calculation and make it a, this math-heavy thing. When you really get down to the experience, there's like a couple of principles of what makes it so that somebody wins or gets a hit or doesn't. And, uh, yeah, that's just interesting that you associate it with the really heavy math side, whereas I kind of feel the opposite, that you need to keep things pretty loose or else it becomes math heavy. And in real life, when you're actually in a fight, you're not doing math, right? You're so... You may not be doing math, but everything you uh, you do is based on math. Like uh, it it just hap like the it just happens based on the physics of the world around you. You know, like well, if I throw a punch, how much like energy is behind that punch? You know. Yes, but I guess the psychological and emotional side of a fight uh, is at least I haven't seen it quantified that much I don't now know. you got me there you you really can't quantify those things like uh uh like really well so i get i guess i'm more looking at the physical side me the mechanical side and more more just uh like you know the mentality of a fight and the mm -hmm. like psychology of a fight and those things so those can be really abstract yeah it's it's just an interesting discussion topic for me Getting, and I mean, it's not just combat. It's there's the same question in all sorts of things like health, and you know, at what point your character should collapse and stop. You know, whether they not necessarily they just go from being healthy to dying, but you know, maybe there's an in between phase where they're they're not doing so great and they need help or something. And you know, what do you base that on? If you're trying to be realistic. Are you keeping track of all of the factors that could bring somebody to the point of being less effective? Or do you just want to pick sort of a number that's like, oh, well, you got close to zero. That's a very video game thing. Like, you know, this bar got to zero and now you're, <laughs> you're dying. Um, versus more of if you were to talk to like a, a wilderness living instructor and he'd be like, yeah, if you just get hungry enough and, you know, your character is suffering from these and these things, you're going to be working, you're going to have half the energy you normally would, and you're not going to be able to operate the same way. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like reality is not, is, is, is simultaneously takes so much into consideration, but do you want to res, are, uh, abstract that into a lot of numbers or, break it into sort of what I would, I was kind of thinking of, you know, when you mentioned having a lot of subsystems, that's kind of what came to mind is that you would have a lot of little subsystems that dictated what happens if your character, for example, has a certain kind of injury or is in a certain right. state of mind, you know, all these kinds of things.
I do actually have those. Uh, you spoke about injuries. I do ha- actually have a small system in play for Benoit Principle. Two, actually. Um, if a um, certain type of critical hit uh, strikes you, uh, you have a, like a portions of your body, and they can get crippled. And crippling a certain body part has a certain effect. For example, if your left eye is crippled, that lowers your perception by one, it gives you a vision penalty, and if both eyes are crippled, then those uh, uh, penalties are doubled, for example. If your uh, knee is crippled, you can uh, no longer crouch or sprint, because mm. uh, you, that, that ability has been taken away from you. If both of your feet are crippled, uh, you can no longer sprint, and you can no longer, like, pretty much walk, because both of your legs are shattered, like, uh... But I also have a... another type of injury, uh, where something can, like, permanently reduce your attributes, or permanently re- reduce your skill, because it became a lasting injury. You know, you get shot in the leg, and it takes away some, like, tissue, or it creates an injury that, even if you heal it by a surgery... It's still there. Like, you can still feel the pain and you can still feel it wince when you try and do a certain actions. So it may reduce your athletic skill, for example. You can't, can't be as athletic anymore because you have a lasting injury there or something like that. Right. So you're, I don't know if that's a common thing across a lot of these subsystems, but it sounds like you have sort of a core set of stats and skills and things that are always a factor. And then, Subsystems are basically a way of resolving a situation in such a way that it ultimately affects those core things. And it's, it's basically like a lot of different paths to reaching um, a difference that affects your character. I mean, that's speaking very vaguely, but that's an example with injuries is that you get injured somewhere, it affects these things. And you have somebody has to specify what things otherwise it's rules light and people can just make up well i got hit sure i got shot in the leg but that shouldn't affect my athletics that should affect my endurance or something you know it's like they could make yeah. up some other result yeah yeah uh, that that's exactly uh that, that, you you again that's a, a very good point like uh yeah I, I do kind of try and quantify what things do rather than make it rules light. So if I do find something like, uh, you know, your leg is crippled, it has a certain effect, and that is the effect. There's no, like, going back on, like, oh, mm-hmm. it should do something different. No, it doesn't. It does this. Like, you know. So it's not up for discussion. It It's written in black and white, and because you know that... Sometimes a situation may be different, especially if you're a... a it, it, if it's a model situation or it's something that uh, you can do to prevent it, there are situations where you can use your uh, skills or you can use your, like, ingenuity to, like, try and bypass a, uh, like, a mechanical, uh, like, uh, let's call it a mechanical disability or uh, or something like that sure. your character has received. Like, uh, it's not always black on white. But I do try and go by the rules as much as I can. I rarely pull my punches, as they say. Like, uh, I, I don't fudge die, for example, and if something happens, it does happen, and I, uh, I rarely go back on it unless I feel like it was an especially unforgiving situation. Yeah, you've mentioned a couple different times where some character, you know, is totally new and they die, or they, some, some random, you know, 
thing happens that's just really uh, just improbable, happens. but it just happens. Yeah, and uh, I appreciate that. I, I think that's a that's a cool way of approaching it. Um, I never really liked the idea of of holding back with players. Uh, I think the system should be good enough on its own that you don't have to. And I realized that that would piss off some people who would hear that and be like, no, we're essentially... Because the other way of looking at this, I'm sure you probably are aware of this, but the other way of looking at it is that this is just an exercise between people and the system should not be in the way of what we're trying to do. And it has to provide the bare minimum tools to resolve things that nobody wants to discuss. Whereas what you're doing and... I think for a large part what I'm doing is trying to let the system handle things to an extent that um, you have a more consistent experience. One thing that I think is really important and I'm seeing um, from what you're describing is that if I were to play your game, I could plan accordingly and rely on the fact that the system, for example, you said injured feet – so if I have any way of injuring somebody's feet, you know, I know exactly what will happen if I do that, if I manage to accomplish that. So it becomes a goal for me to use the system to create that effect, whereas if it's up for negotiation and discussion, now I have to hope that once I do my plan, somebody else will be willing to play along with that and listen to my ideas. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess it, yeah, it, that, that would work if, uh, yeah, like, uh, since the rules are so clear on, uh, a few things, there's a little muddling, you can, you can accomplish a lot of things, uh, if you know exactly how the rules work. That's why, uh, I have, uh, a player, uh, my brother, who, uh, is, kind of the co-creator of this game and he's so very good at the game that he can pretty much take any mechanic and just turn it upside down because he knows it so well he can almost abuse it to his uh to his own benefit it's always great uh, to have somebody like that playing your yeah, game yeah he, he's, he's very much a power gamer when it comes to some some situations but he he also knows when to like uh mellow down a little bit and make something fun but i i think he just likes uh I think he just likes knowing mechanics well and then using those mechanics to his benefit. Well, I know one of the the things that drives me crazy about looking at RPGs, talking, you know, just seeing the community and the way that they discuss a game, even if it's not anything I'm involved with or, you know, I just see other people talking about other people's games and they'll boil down an entire RPG system in such a disgustingly crude way but it's it's true and you can't really argue with them they'll say this is just a dump stat this is what matters if you want to be successful you have to do a b and c this is the best class this is the best weapon and players will find a way i mean players are are always going to try to optimize so and what's that Oh, well, no, that's not a problem in itself. The, the problem is that it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking to think that somebody put so much effort into a system with all these options and then ultimately it gets distilled down into such a simple formula that, you know, maybe 5% of people are going to try this 
thing that you put some thought into, but you know, because the numbers don't add up, it stops being viable or interesting, you know, and the idea of, for example, I'm not pretending to know anything about your system to that level, but if somebody were to say the best strategy in Benoit principle is landmines and you just scatter landmines and run away and their feet are going to get crippled if they try to follow you because A, B, and C or whatever, it's like you could have a lot of cool stuff in this system and I would hate to see it boil down to something as rudimentary as that, you know. Um, but it just happens all the time. It seems like every RPG gets gets boiled down eventually, and and only those who like to experiment for the sake of experimentation um, actually explore all of the options. Uh, like I I get what you're where you're coming from, and there certainly are some situations where I can say like. This is kind of the best way, uh, or the you can. This is the strongest character you can make in Benoit Principle. Like uh, I, I can see some situation where that's correct, uh, but I do did try to add a sprinkle of randomness, uh, even in the character creation of Benoit Principle. That is mostly point by. Uh, the point by section comes in where you have to spend your character points and make your attributes. That is the most important choice you have to make for your character, plus race and plus your traits. And that really defines the core of your character. Uh, everything else is just smart skill point allocation, picking your uh, perks correctly. And then you just have to see if you're lucky or not to, uh, if, to see if, if you don't like getting mutations on your character... You want to have a low mutation chance, mm. but the mutation stands, uh, chance statistic for your character is randomly determined. It can be higher or lower based on your race. If you're someone who has never been exposed to mutagens or has been exposed excessively to mutagens, you will have a higher chance of getting mutation. Whereas someone who is more acclimated to the radiation and mutagens that are out there on the wilds, or they've already been mutated, such as a ghoul or a super mutant, they have a much lower chance of getting mutations. Right. And then that um, way that way, people can't strictly plan out a character, even if they wanted to. But, uh, but there is a way to sort of mitigate the, the randomness, right? So... Oh yeah, of course. You can you can pick out a trait that lowers your mutation chance. You can pick out perks that reduce your mutation chance if you get it high in the first place, or if you get it low in the first place, and you want it to be opposite. Uh, of course, I have seen characters where um, the craziest characters you can get in this game are the ones where you pick a character with a high mutation chance, like as a as a ra racial choice. And then you roll for it, and then you use your one re-roll in character creation to re-roll it again if you get a low number to get the highest possible number, because there's a chance that uh, you get a mutation in the character creation if your mutation chance is high enough. <laughs> right. So they do that, and they get a mutation, and because they chose an abomination, they get a free mutation on top of that. And uh, then they use all of their... Um, like uh, uh, starting bonuses to roll for more mutations, and because their mutation chance is already high, they get more and more mutations on the list of stronger mutations, 
and uh, then they just make a they can make a really insane character that way if they get lucky, or they can make an atrophied pile of goo that is just like <laughs> both of my hats have turned into dog paws, and uh, like I have leprosy, so all my body parts keep falling out every two weeks, like. Uh, like they can end up a real, with a real mess if they don't do it uh, careful enough. That's a great point. Uh, I, I keep forgetting that you you want to ha- that you're aiming for a system that is that um, loose and fun and just wanting to have you know all the options on the table and and have a sense of humor about it, which is what Fall is great at is having you know characters that are. You can play it as seriously as you want, but there's also the ability to sort of always have that mm-hmm. dark sense of humor underneath all of it. Um, uh, it, it also might just happen that uh, even a serious character, if they get exposed to radiation enough, they just happen to get a radiation mutation, and that that like that changes their character in in a uh, in a certain way later. So you can get mutations involuntarily. Uh, as well, like you, you don't have to like specifically go for hog intimutations to get mm-hmm. them. You also just might get them if you get exposed to radiations or if you, if you get exposed to mutagens. So it kind of forces that change on your character. Um, now I wanted to also talk about the. There's one thing you mentioned about success degrees and and how you handle that in your system. You want to explain what it is that that you were proud of when it comes to the degrees of success? Um, so that is the one thing I did look at other games with. Um, like, there's a lot of things that I feel like I'm a hypocrite with, and there are a lot of things that I feel like I'm a contrarian with. So when I speak like, oh, everything is original, there may be one or few two things that you really like aren't done with that design principle in mind. With the damage system and the aptitude system, I wanted to make sure that every point matters in the D100 because it is a percentile die. Like, what, like, for example, in Warhammer 40k, you only get a degree of success for every 10 you're <laughs> under or over. Yes. The, uh, or the, uh, whatever it is. And that just feels like the, uh, the rest is just wasted. Like, it doesn't matter. Whereas in my system, uh, like every point matters, even the one percent might matter at some point, you know. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I thought, and that's sort of a evergreen topic, I think, in terms of RPG design, is how much does the 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 subtleties of a D100 actually matter versus a D20, which is the same thing, just broken down into increments of five or whatever. So, um, so in your system, like. If I remember correctly, you said that damage scaled directly with the number that you beat the target number by or something like that. Uh, So in that sense, you know, a character could have 12 health and 13, getting a 13 actually matters on the dice then, uh, living or dying based on even the small things. Do you have, do you try to play up the, the intensity of that? And I mean, my first reaction as a designer, if I was going to go that direction would be to try to put a lot of tools in players' hands to slightly shift that number after it's been rolled or before it's been rolled because it's, 
because when you know that the exact number matters that much, you feel like your fate really is just in the dice and the luck factor. Do you like the feeling of it being up to the exact luck of the situation, or do you want people to be able to, for example, have a meta currency or something else that will kind of let them decide how much the luck is going to matter at any given point or how much they'll shift it through their strategy or spending a certain thing or making a certain action. Let's see here. You can kind of do both. I really like that it's all down to the luck of the die, pretty much. And uh, a great meme with my group, for example, is and with many groups is the roll 20 luck, where it just seems like whatever dice program you're using is against you because it just keeps giving you high numbers and it yeah. keeps giving your enemies low numbers and you just got fucked by a situation even though you were technically supposed to be the one on top. For like, sure, uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I had that happen recently with a game of mine where, uh, like, uh, the party was, uh, they raided a boat. They, uh, just jumped in there and then they were gonna attack the enemy and they really, like, the die, uh, the, like, deck was stacked on their favor. Like, they were gonna win that. But then, like, um, you know, they managed to do, get, like, very good hits in. They had very strong characters. They managed to kill, like, okay, what, two, two enemies died immediately. And now there's only, like, four left. But then the situation came that, uh, okay, critical hit to the head that deals damage, which then knocks you unconscious. So you're now on the floor, despite having been wearing, like, power armor. <laughs> like, uh, you know, like, that character is done for, and that was the tank. Like, okay, now the tank's down due to a freak accident. Oh, no. And then the enemies just have enough intelligence to realize that they're wearing armor. We can remove the helmet. So instead of attacking him while they're on the ground, they remove his helmet and then start attacking the exposed head that's uh, on the ground. So, oh, no, <laughs> situation's becoming worse. Like, oh, we have gunners there on the, uh, you know, back, and they have high skill, and they, they've been aiming, like, to get their skill even higher because you can take an action to aim, you can spend action points to get your uh, get a bonus to aiming. Yeah. Oh, no, they fail at this and get critical failures to skip their turn. Like, oh, no, and now the enemy gets closer, and then, like, the situation is done for, like, two characters dead, one is almost dying, he's just, like, hanging on to a barrel of fucking gunpowder on the ground, on the <laughs> ocean. Like, please save me. <laughs> like, uh... It got really turned upside down despite them having the advantage. Like, the die just fucked them. And I really like that situation. Like, uh, it, it, it just happens. Like, uh, you know, yeah. the lock wasn't on your side despite everything's being stacked on your side. Right. I'm, and that is where you can just leave things up to essentially, if you want to think of it as a simulation, um, you know, in a simulation, being probably the winner or the likely winner should never be the the absolute and there's there's a certain i think i think it's just a logical fallacy that designers have uh, and in the people have in general where they think that if it's over 50 percent that's as good as being guaranteed and that there's something wrong with it if it doesn't happen that way uh, but definitely i mean you can say what you want about the roll 20 system and computerized randomness is, depending on who you ask, is sort of an illusion. But, um, you know, it's it's supposed to be a good enough 
simulation of true randomness and the idea that it has a sort of running bad numbers or good numbers and you start to become paranoid about the system being against you is is funny. I don't know how much I can get behind it as a designer, though. I, I pro- uh, it, that that is uh, that is just a. Uh, I have no idea how Roll Twenty handles randomness. This is based on the noise of mouse movement on the background, or is it just <laughs> literally a piece of code that is like if you write one D one hundred, it randomly picks a number between one and one hundred and. What the logic behind that is, if there's any, like, you know, if it is based on random mouse movement, then you technically could fudge the die sort of in your way by moving your mouse in a certain <laughs> manner. That, that, that's how, like, uh, in old video games or in some video games, you can speed run them by uh, manipulating the internal logic of the game by doing certain um, actions. <laughs> that's like, true, actually. I didn't think you know, about that. does a certain result. Like, in the old Legend of Zelda, you can force enemies to drop bombs, for example, or hearts if you do a certain things. So, like, you have a higher chance of the enemy dropping a bomb or even a certain chance of an enemy dropping a bomb. So I don't know if that's true or not for Roll20, but you could think that it is. Yeah. Uh, I just know that in when people people play the newer XCOM games, there's the meme about the 99% uh, chance to hit and always missing it. Um, oh, that that's actually because, uh, like, what XCOM did was it pretty much... Uh, predetermines every shot every shot before the uh, mission starts so if you reload the mission and play it the exact same way the exact same thing is going to happen so yeah yeah, yeah. i i know that part but still the idea that there's ever a 99% chance that misses and that so many people consistently report the same thing that they feel like they had a 99% chance but really they got into so many of those situations and if you sort of uh, aggregate the amount of complaints about that, if it seems like statistically it's actually more like seventy percent and ninety percent, ninety nine percent was just uh, the number showing on the screen or something. I don't know. Mm. Um, it, it's it's obviously people being being salty about uh, bad math, and I I do did respect that they wanted to try to prevent save scumming by having a predetermined string of I don't even know what you really refer to it as because it's not that it predetermines whether you succeed or fail it predetermines what number is compared against the number that you're using or something I guess so I don't know it's yeah, I have no idea how the internal logic goes. The only thing I know is that it's predetermined as soon as you start, launch the mission. So it like generates a seed, and then based on that seed, certain things happen. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, that that's a uh, a whole different subject. But it's the the oh. fact that you're trying to design a game that where the the D100 is is important in every digit on it every number on it matters um and you're willing to just accept the consequences of that i think that is something that would truly set your game apart from almost any other game that i've heard about because a lot of times it's either a d100 where all it's trying to do is you know have a threshold that you can fudge a little bit like you know the the gm can make something 
three degrees harder or two degrees harder based on the situation than than otherwise where you'd have to have a bigger number and therefore <laughs> I like it, it it's a little bit silly the way most people care about so much about the numbers but if you are actually going to commit to that and have each number matter i think that's pretty unique and mm. I, I can see why people get into that in in that respect the damage curve of a uh, of the die roll is really interesting too or the effect curve you should say uh or i i should say is that the higher your number is the lower the effect of your shot will be and if it's in the threshold of a critical failure then like the effect becomes really low but there is the 1 in 100 chance that it becomes a critical hit instead and then it like spikes up again so it the curve looks really weird where it goes down and then it dips down a lot, but then there's that one random chance that dips it back up again. Mm. And yeah. then when it, in the same vein, when it, the number, like the, the roll of your D100 is lower, the effect curve goes up, so the better your effect is always is, until it reaches the point where you get a critical hit and then it spikes up. But there is that one in 100 chance that it's actually a critical failure and it spikes down again, you know? Wow. Like, uh, so you want to sort of keep, um, keep people on their toes even when they get the big success or big failure and create another yep. random, extreme yep, random there chance. A, uh, there is a, uh, a D100 table for uh, normal critical uh, successes and critical failures in combat where one or two results are uh, for critical failures is, like, nothing happens, it's just a critical failure, you can even continue your turn. Uh, a critical failure ends your turn no matter what, even if the effect of the critical failure doesn't do anything, it still ends your turn, unless otherwise specified, even if you have action points left. That's, like, the danger of receiving that uh, critical failure, and it's always a bad thing because it ends your turn. Uh, but there's also the, if you get like a hundred on a critical failure, it turns into a critical hit instead. Like you fail so bad that you actually fail good, you know? Oh, okay. And you expect people to always narratively explain how, how the best thing turns out the worst or the worst thing turns out the best. Uh, I can, I can, uh, I as the GM can really assist in that situation. I can like explain like, oh, you, there, you fudge your shot, but then like this fucking miracle happens or something like that. I try to make the situation interesting. Like yeah, if you yeah. get the critical failure where you accidentally shoot yourself with a plasma gun, it could be easy as you, the plasma gun overloads and it like shoots the plasma over yourself or something like that. Or you're, a uh, like uh, laser gun hits a reflective surface by accident. You miss your target, and there just happens to be a polished piece of metal like sitting there that it reflects off of and hits directly at you, or something like that. Uh, there's also the critical failures where you hit your allies instead, uh, and those are always fun, especially if it's you hit your ally critically, and now it becomes even worse. Like uh, yeah. a, a worse thing happens. Uh, and then in critical hits, you have the 100 result is you critically fail instead. So, uh, you know. Yeah, that's, that's quite a bold, like, from a design point of view, that's, um, that's kind of like a power play, I feel like, to be, cause people love, obviously they love their crits and their crit fails. Um, they, they include crit fails even in systems that shouldn't have 
by the by mm-hmm. by the rule books they'll always include it in there just because it's so funny and then uh, a lot of systems are trying to go for the idea of the exploding dice or the the exploding critical where basically when you roll a critical you have a chance of it doubling the success again because you you get another critical and then you can chain them together and have sort of this one super duper lucky outcome and i guess theoretically you could do that in reverse as well with bad luck but to i've never heard of somebody say that they were going to turn their their critical into a chance to severely fail and vice versa i i can see how that would um excite everybody at the table a lot to have that as an option that as soon as somebody gets a, a critical fail or a success, they would immediately be hoping and praying for that one in a hundred chance or hoping that they don't get that one in a hundred chance. Yeah. That, because there's so much variance. It doesn't even like it, it helps that it doesn't happen so often. So when it does happen, it's like, Oh shit, that really happened. Like, Oh, we're, we're going to go now. And, there's a lot of jumping between some of the critical hit tables that exist. There have been situations where a critical hit resulted in you having to roll like 5D, uh, uh, 5D 100 pretty much because it's like, okay, you hit on uh, or you roll on the damage type critical table, which then results in, the, in you rolling on the generic critical table, which then results in you rolling three different results because you get the... Uh, roll three times on the critical table instead of just one time, and you know, like it, it, it can it can become really crazy. There's a chain there reaction. Even been, pardon? I said there's a chain reaction. But there's a chain reaction. It can happen in mutations too, where you get like uh, like get two mutations instead, and then one of your mutations is uh, a volatile, so you get two mutations the next time you get a mutation. And then the other mutation you get is like you get an extra mutation, which then turns into two more mutations. Like so it's four it's instead of one. Yeah. yeah, that's. You know what? I I think that's cool. It's, you know, people love their, and and that's another reason why having a D one hundred system can let you have something that's random. And is so unlikely, like literally one percent we're talking about that that it's okay to throw in something crazy because players you know still always will always love and respect the one percent chance uh just because it's so funny and and extreme um but you don't have to change the game balance around that, and people would get very annoyed if there's a one in 20 chance even because that's 5%. That's uncomfortable. You start to make decisions based on that. But I don't feel like any player is going to make a decision based on a 1% chance of something happening. So it's there for extreme variety. And if you're playing for long enough, sooner or later it will happen. Um, and if somebody somehow gets it multiple times in you know a short period of time, now they're known as the person who has this extreme luck factor. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's just this something. It's it's really taking advantage of that player psychology of um, anticipating these extremely lucky situations, and that's something that I feel like definitely 
is more powerful in a role-playing game than in any video game. And I wish more people understood that. The psychology of role-playing as a character and then having something crazy happen is very different than playing a video game and having something crazy happen because it's so removed from your your character's reaction, like your character in the scene in a role-playing tabletop can, you know, like you said, you can say that some, you can invent a whole story about why something happened. Um, whereas in a video game, even if you had a crazy crit fail or success, all you think of is this shitty game just, you know, fucked me over or it, yay, it gave me a big booze, thank you game. And you don't, it's not narratively satisfying in any way. Now, that's where the old Fallout games also did very well, because they did have small, like, flavor text over what happens when you do get a critical hit. <laughs> oh, that's right, yeah. That. So, uh, and it had the crazy animations where, like, oh, like, your critical hit eviscerates the opponent and that their head explodes. And like, that it's just like it, the whole game world stops as that one guy just falls on their knees and then... Go like falls on the ground and then it gets small blood puddle like oh that just fucking happened like Jesus like that's so much more like impressive and then so much more like you know it has a lot more like oomph to it than uh, a lot of the uh, like you know oh I just get more damage yay I just get a big number and then nothing else happens yeah like one of my one of the saddest things in video games I feel like and that I really hate um, that is that massive multiplayer online RPG experience of seeing the screen where you have 30 characters sitting around this big boss that's just sitting there and you just have this this waterfall of numbers pouring down or floating up across the screen and oh here's a big red number because it was a super critical hit and here's a a smaller yellow one because it was a partial critical hit and and none of it matters, and it all just gets blended into a big noise machine where you don't stop and appreciate anything that's happening, and it's just a random number generator that you're just watching. And the complete opposite of that can happen in role-playing where it becomes very personal, it becomes attached to your character's entire story. Suddenly, everyone knows your character is the guy who's you know, one in a million shot, he can make it. And even though it's totally random and it was just dice that happened to be in his favor that time, it becomes part of his personality now. And it, you know, or the GM can take it in such a different direction that it actually becomes relevant to the story. And there's just an opportunity to pay off that randomness in a very personalized way. And, and role-playing games have so much to offer in that sense while still keeping the the number system behind it all intact and and making it so it's fair because it's very unlikely to happen so you have the the math adds up and is fair but the payoff is very personal and and memorable versus a video game that is true oh uh, I do have to mention on the critical chance and critical failure mechanics, um, I do have a lot of things that can fudge the, the numbers either in your favor or against you. 
you can pick certain traits that increase or decrease your critical chance or critical failure. Um, you can pick perks that fudge that you can, uh, like target someone's head for a higher chance at getting a critical chance. Um, and you can use weapons that give you a critical chance advantage or, uh, even a critical failure advantage or, um, uh, or, uh, your critical failure is lower if you use a certain type of weapon or it's higher if you use a certain type of weapon. I can easily see, uh, using a flail having a chance of, uh, getting a catastrophe happen to you uh, sure, versus yeah, yeah. using the normal knife like there are ways that those numbers get fudged around uh certainly mm, yeah and then and then again every if every degree on the dice matters then all those little choices in character creation also feel more impactful because mm-hmm. because you're playing with um very real numbers that if, especially if you don't fudge the dice ever and you you sort of play it straight as a GM, um, that becomes more memorable again when something crazy happens. And you you know that it was because you made certain decisions that you were now in this threshold instead of a more favorable or unfavorable one. And, and that means that players become more attached to the decisions they've made. And, yeah, long term, it, it pays off when you follow through with it that way. And it sounds like from the experiences you did have with the early, whatever the follow-up games you played were that you hated their, uh, the role-playing systems, um, they were totally inconsistent. And I, I think I see now why you wanted to have your own remake that's trying to set everything up in a more consistent order so people can have a longer-term satisfying experience and think ahead of what they want to do and customize everything. And you had the weapon creation system. I, I'm starting to see how it all ties together to be a lot of small decisions people can make that still make a real difference and and it still feels consistent over a long period of playing. Mm-hmm. Yep, well, it's basically, I think, I think that's going to be it for this episode. Um, and thank you very much for coming on and, and talking with me and explaining. No, no worries, no worries. I've been just watching our two Discord icons uh, just flash whenever <laughs> we speak here. So. Yeah, um, yeah, it was great learning about Benoit Principle and Gratia and. Uh, if you want to come back on when you do create your next edition or something like that, then you're welcome to come back and we can follow up on these things. That's one of the things we like to do on the podcast. So, Oh, yeah, sure, sure. I'd love to. All right. Well, I'll see you on the Discord. And it sounded to me like you didn't have a website or anything, you were, a social media account or anything you were trying to uh, promote. Nope. Pretty much no. I uh, I could I could give people my email, and you can email me if you have some questions. But uh, well, I mean, theoretically, people might want to get the system somehow. And oh and... yeah, yeah, of course. So they can can do it that way. I, uh, I I'm I'm worse at spelling than uh, normal uh, people who s- speak English are. Uh, even can... though it might not sound like it, so I'm just gonna write it down. And write it down. I'll put it in the description of the yep, of the video. That, that and... works. Okay. Well, 
then people can go find the link and and you know if they want to talk to you about the system or what's coming up or what you did before it's all it's all there if you want to talk to Benoit and yeah thank you again and I'll see you back on the forum or on the on the, on the discord